Chapter 21 No Quarter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brittany Rill. No Quarter by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter 21 No Quarter. Straight on to the soldier's road, Sir Richard Eustace Trevor by his side their mounted servants behind, the men afoot following close after in a surging mass. These soon as well through the gate, extended line to the right and left, turning the troop until they had it hemmed in on every side. Nor was it altogether the movement of a mob, but evidently under direction, Rob Wilde appearing to guide it more by signs and signals than spoken words. However managed, the troop now saw themselves environed by pikes and other pointed things a very cheval de frise, held in the hands of men whose faces showed no fear in them, for the country had not yet been cursed by a standing army. In the eyes of the citizen, the soldier was not that formidable thing since and now. Rather was the fear on the side of Lunsford's party, most of whom, foresters themselves of the inferior sort, knew the men who stood confronting them. Up to this moment, no word had been spoken by their commanding officer, save some muttered speech he exchanged with Reginald Trevor, nor did he now break the silence, leaving that to the intruders. Captain, or as I understand you are now being called, Colonel Lunsford, said Sir Richard, drawing up in front of him, by the way you're behaving, you appear to think yourself in the low countries, with rights of free forage and plunder. Let me tell you, sir, this is England, where such courses are not yet in vogue, and to be hoped never will be, even though a king authorize, eh, command them. But I command you, in the name of the people, to detest from them, or take the consequence." Under such smart of words, it might be supposed that a professional soldier and king's officer would have dared death itself, or any odds against him. It was this. The muttered speech had passed between him and Reginald Trevor, the latter urging him to risk it all and fall on. Whatever else, he was no dastard. And though he had once given away on the same spot, it was not from cowardice, but ruled by a sentiment very different. In vain his attempt to inspire his superior officer with courage equaling his own. No more would he have been successful with their followers. As he could see by looking along the line of faces, most of them showing dread of that threatening array of miscellaneous weapons and reluctance to engage them. In fine, the ex-lieutenant of Tower made lip his mind to live a little longer even at the risk of being stigmatized as a poltroon, but not instantly declaring himself too confused and humiliated for speech. Sir Richard went on, No doubt, sir, your delicate sense of humanity will restrain you from a conflict in which your soldiers must be defeated and their blood spilled uselessly. Innocent little lambs as they appear to be. The irony elicited laughter from the foresters for a more forbidding set of faces than those of the troops, could not well have been seen anywhere. But, continued the knight, 
If you declare to withdraw without showing how skillfully you can yourself handle a sword, I'm willing to give you the opportunity. You've had it from me before and refused. But you may be a braver man and think yourself a better swordsman now. So I offer it again. The taunt was torture itself to the man whose teeth it was flung. All the more from the cheering and jibes from the foresters, who seemed thoroughly to enjoy seeing John Winter's bullies thus brought to book, and still more that in the window above were two feminine faces, one of them that he had been so late admiring, the ladies evidently listening. Notwithstanding all, Lunsford could not screw up courage for a combat he had once before declared. Now the second time shunned it, saying, Sir Richard Wilman, I am not here for the sentiment of private quarrels. When the time fits for it, I shall answer the challenge that you say is repeated, but which I deny. My business at present is with Mr. Ambrose Powell, as Deputy Commissioner of Array, to collect the King's dues from him. Since he refused to pay them, I have no orders nor wish to use violence so far as shedding blood. It but remains for me to take his answer back to my superiors. It was such a ludicrous breakdown of his late blustering and withdrawal of all demand that the foresters hailed it with a huzzah mingled with laughter and satirical speech. When their cheering had ceased, so he could be heard, Sir Richard rejoined, Yes, that is the best thing you can do, and the sooner you said about it, the better for both yourself and your men, as you may be aware without further warning. It was like giving the last kick to a cur, and a cur Tom Lunsford took it, literally turning tail, that of his horse, upon Hollymead House. Out through the haw-haw gate he rode, his troop behind, every man jack of them looking cowed and crestfallen as himself. Alone, Reginald Trevor held high front, retiring with angry reluctance, as a lion driven from its quarry by hunters, too numerous to be resisted. But he passed not away without holding speech with his cousin, on both sides bitterly reincriminative. So you've turned your back on the king. It was Reginald who said this, having spurred up alongside the other before parting. Rather say the king has turned his back upon the people, was Eustace's rejoinder. After such behavior as I've been just witness to, by his orders and authority, I think I am justified in turning my back upon him. Oh, that's your way of putting it. Well, it may justify you in the eyes of your new friends here. Very warm friends all at once. This with a sneer. But what will your father think? He won't like it, I'm sure. I dare say he won't. If not, I can't help it. And don't seem to care either. How indifferent you've grown to family feeling. And in such short space of time. You used to pass for the most affectionate of sons. A very paragon of fulfilled duty. And now? And now, interrupted the ex-corridor, becoming impatient at being thus lectured. Whatever I may be, I am old enough, and I think myself wise enough, to manage my own affairs without needing counsel from anyone, even my sage cousin Reginald. As you like, Eust, but you'll repent what you're doing yet. If I should, Reg, 
It won't be any blame to you. You can go your way, as I will mine. Ah, yours will bring you to ruin. Like enough your neck upon the blocker in a halter. I'll risk that. If there's to be a hanging and beheading, which I hope there will not, it needn't be all on one side. So far that you are on hasn't had the advantage in the beheading line, and it's not likely. They who struck off Stransford's head might be some day to do the same with the king's own, and he would deserve it going on this way. By heaven, cried Reginald, now becoming infuriated. The king will wear his head and crown too, long enough to punish every traitor, every base renegade as yourself. The angry bitterness of his speech was not all inspiring by loyalty to the king or throne. Those fair faces above had something to do with it, for the ladies were still there listening, and he knew it. Never was Eustace Trevor nearer to drawing a sword, not to do it. But it was his kinsman, cousin, how could he shed his blood? That too late so freely, generously offered in his defiance. Still, to be stigmatized as a base renegade, he could not leave such speech unanswered, nor the anger he felt unexpressed. If you were not my cousin, Reg, I would kill you. He spoke in a low tone, trembling with passion. You kill me? <laughs> then try, if you like, if you dare. And the king's officer made a movement as if to unsheath his sword. You know I dare, but I won't. Not here, not now. It was with the utmost effort Eustace Trevor controlled himself. He was only successed by thinking of what had been before. If there was no feeling of fear that hindered him crossing his sword with his cousin, but the sentiment hitherto restraining himself. Oh well, rejoiced Reginald, we'll meet again. Maybe on the field of battle, and if so, by gah. I'll make you rue this, show you no mercy. You will when you're asked for it. You needn't ask. When you see my sword out, you'll hear the cry. No quarter. When I hear that, I'll cry too. Not another word passed between them, Reginald wheeling around and galloping off after the soldiers. And from that hour in his heart, full of jealous vengeance, the resolve... Should he ever encounter his cousin in the field of fight, to show him no quarter. End of chapter 20 Recording by Brittany Rill